This is the John Oakley Show podcast. It is that time as we get closer to the elusive weekend. Topics worthy of discussion. Our last order of business on the Friday edition of the Oakley Show brought to you by Pizzaville. Dial pound 3636. This would be a good weekend to do that. Pound 3636 for Pizzaville. It's Friday, and joining us, as per usual, the Reverend Dr. Sherry DeNovo, Minister at Trinity St. Paul's Center for Faith, Justice, and the Arts, and the former NDP MPP for Parkdale High Park. Sherry, how are you? I'm good. Happy Valentine's Day, It is, isn't it? Yeah, I almost forgot. Uh, Thank you. Uh, Michael Giles is with us. Government apparatchik, 30 years. Currently Chief of Staff to Deputy Mayor Anna Bailao. How's Michael? Very good. I got a vacation day today, so I took it. Oh, did you? Relaxing, yeah. Yeah, Valentine's well, Valentine's Day and all that. Sure. But I wait until tomorrow until the chocolates are half price. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. You're going to need a vacation after that. <laughs> Kelly Harris, rounding out the panel, Principal of Harris Public Affairs, also a columnist for Queen's Park Briefing and the Niagara Independent. How's Kelly? I'm fantastic because it is a great day for talk radio, John. Thank you for that, Kelly. You know, I was reading your piece in the Niagara Independent. Uh, first step to building pipelines, question mark, get treaties done. And uh, it seems you've got some intimate knowledge of how this all works, certainly out in B.C., having worked with the government of Gordon Campbell there. And this has been an incessant issue out there in B.C., needless to say, right? I mean, you point to that, saying that this is sort of different than other regions of the country. And uh, why is that not sort of how we... Uh, how we got to this position now where you've got this disputed uh, governance issue, effectively, where the pipeline is projected to run 670 kilometers uh, over northeastern B.C. to the coast, uh, the Wet'suwet'en territory. Uh, you got hereditary chiefs, then you got band councils. Who's the authoritative voice there? Spell it all out for us. Well, the quickest way to say that is most treaties in Canada started east to west, and they stopped at the Rocky Mountains. In British Columbia, there are a few treaties. They're mostly the Douglas treaties on the Vancouver Island. There's been some treaties negotiated, like the Nisga, uh, Sawasan Treaty, Musqueam, and others. Um, what's left is crowned land under treaty claim. Um, and then you have two, each band has two kind of leadership groups. The first leadership group is the hereditary chiefs. And these are, as the name implies, these are, these are leadership held down, passed down through the ages, the families of the leaderships, sort of like queens in, in, in monarchy. And then you have the, the Indian Act of 1876 established elected bands and councils, and they sort of deal with the economic day-to-day of the First Nations. Then you have this land that's crown land that is former hunting territories or traditional villages that the bands claim as, as First Nations land, but that hasn't been determined yet through the treaty process. And because it hasn't been determined, you have to deal with all of the same rules that we have in Canada, the Environmental Protection Acts and such like that. But because of Dalgama uh, trial, uh, First Nations uh, ruling, because of the uh, Taku River Tinglet First Nations hearing, it, it established the need for consultation over that pro- land to use that land, accommodation when necessary, but no veto is on that. The real failure in this, John, in my in my belief, is the failure of the senior levels of government to properly deal with First Nations treaty rights and title to this land and create clarity for the use of this land. And because they haven't done that, it leads to the type of protest we are seeing, and it's not going to stop. Wow. Uh, sounds ominous. So... We're not going to resolve this thing anytime soon. It's been going on for a lot of years, but you know what? We had some fantastic, we made some fantastic 
way with uh, under the Campbell government with Prime Minister Kretchen, with Prime Minister Martin, with Prime Minister Harper. Now, none of them were as strong uh, so-called First Nations proponents as Prime Minister Justin Trudeau claims to be. Um, and yet we don't seem to be making that headway with a prime minister who thinks reconciliation is changing a name on a building. Reconciliation starts with rights and title of land and making decisions on who is responsible for land under treaty claim, crown land under treaty claim. Well, even the bands, if I've got it right, uh, are having a dispute within their own internal politics, are they not? Yes, of course, because <clears throat> the hereditary chiefs often will run against other leaders um, for to be to be the band council. And the way it works is hereditary chiefs really their role is the is the culture, the historical land, its traditions of the First Nation. So oftentimes, if they feel that the elected officials are giving out too much to industry, in this case, pipelines, it it creates this type of battle. And in addition, with this particular one, we've also got questions around dealing with issues like the um, Highway of Tears, the missing women and girls, where it was said that industrial buildup in these areas was a contributing factor but where is BC Premier John Horgan on this? Where is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau on this? Nothing is being done. And now you've got these absolutely unacceptable protests that are taking over places like the People's House in Victoria. And well, they're also right there at Dundas it, Square at Young and Dundas Street. Just within the last hour, there's been a protest stage trying out, uh, tying up rush hour traffic. I mean... Michael Giles, is it a case that uh, the prime minister is missing in action, or does he have a role to play in all of this? Well, uh, I, you know, he's, he's been in Africa, and I believe he's in Munich today, so I think he's going to stay in Europe until things calm down. It, it is. I mean, everything that was just said is absolutely true. There's no leadership at the top here. You need to have people at the table. These problems are not going away by themselves. And uh, at the same time, you know, we have a situation where, you know, uh, rails, rail lines are blocked, and, you know, this is starting to have a major impact uh, upon our economy, and there are people that are going to be suffering. And who's going to suffer, for example, you know, like the Via Rails, who traditionally uses tidies, you know, people who can't afford to fly for $1,000 or cruising trains. So it's people who, you know, going home from school, all this kind of stuff. So something needs to be done. We need to resolve this. We need to have it at the highest level of of, uh, of, of the government, and it is the Prime Minister. And I think CN's move, frankly, the other day was... Uh, sort of a fairly clever move in the sense that by doing what they did, uh, they shifted this to federal jurisdiction because, of course, the rail lines, uh, the whole railway system is federally uh, mandated. And uh, they, they realized they weren't getting anywhere with, you know, when you have the province saying, you know, the federal government saying, well, the province has got to do this and, you know, the OPP has got to do this. At some point, we elect people to take charge. We elect people who are responsible for, for policing in this country. We elect people who are responsible for dealing with issues of indig- you know, indigenous affairs issues, that kind of thing. Somebody has to deal with it, and you're not going to deal with it talking to world leaders in Munich about security issues. Well, Justin Trudeau, as you say in Munich, uh, he says the government's not going to interfere, interfere with police issues. Give a listen. Obviously, we are not the kind of country uh, where politicians get to tell the police what to do in operational matters. We have professional police forces right across the country who uh, are engaged uh, in this issue as uh, their mandates lead them to. I wonder if that was the same thing applied when he with Judy Jody Wilson Raybon. Well, he certainly inserted himself in that equation, didn't he? Or maybe he learned his lesson.
Sherry DeNovo, is he abdicating his responsibility, duty here, or is he right? You know, let's leave it up to the cops and they'll sort it out. Well, uh, first of all, I have to say love is in the air. It's Valentine's Day. We seem to have some agreement around the table. <laughs> Got to love it. Yes. Um, who's at fault here? A pox on the houses of both Horgan and Trudeau uh, for not stepping up and doing what they should have done, uh, and that is sit down and negotiate <laughs> treaties in good faith. I mean, there have been Supreme Court decisions in uh, 1997 around this, and, you know, uh, the the wet so Wet'suwet'en um, at at that point had treaty rights over their land. I, I mean, the reaction to this, uh, when you send the RCMP, and somebody sends in the RCMP, they don't just make up their minds to do things. I mean, so Justin's disingenuous. I, I mean, come on. I, yeah, I mean, this, putting the blame, what he's doing is blaming the front lines, the RCMP, for his uh, his lack of, of leadership, um, and and uh, Horgan's no better. So, like, why finally they're starting to talk? They should have done this months and months ago, and and the and the protests are absolutely predictable, um, and will continue until they do. But uh, the idea that we've got these protests just to the east of us there, uh, Tyendinaga, and there is a rule of law: things need to get to. You know, stores and businesses, people want to get to and fro. Uh, is that justifiable in tying that traffic up? Well, if somebody came on your land, your traditional land, uh, and they see it as such, um, without warrant and started, you know, forcing forcing you off your land, arresting your elders. Um, you Where are think, they doing this? In you, Belleville? It, 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 no, but you think this is not going to have a reaction among Indigenous across Canada and those who support all the phony, you know, uh, sort of all the phony land acknowledgements that are done by politicians uh, without anything to back it up. Well, this is this is being called, um, and 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 their complete hypocrisy is being called upon by those who are indigenous and those who support uh, some resolution of indigenous land claims. And here well, we see what happens well, when you, they don't do that. I, I wanted to understand that because if you've got uh, twenty of the band councils who are uh, duly elected democratically, so and they're in favor of the project going ahead, doesn't that carry some weight, Kelly? It, it, of course it carries weight. They're, they're one of the two leadership groups, but you've also got a premier in B.C., for example, who is not meeting with any of the hereditary chiefs, despite the fact that he is, he is asked to sit down with them. You've got a premier in B.C. who wouldn't even talk to the media after these protests stormed the legislature and created terror and fear throughout the building. So you, you've got a real dereliction of duty there. But if you want to talk about uh, things just north of here, let's let's remember the people up there in Ottawa running Justin Trudeau's office were the same guys who were running Dalton McGuinty's office when we had Kaladin going on in Ontario. They've got a little bit of background on these types of things, and they have a little bit of background on inappropriate use of policing resources and inability to properly use policing resources. So, I mean, fool me once, shame on me, but you can't fool me on this one. This is, this is a dereliction of duty by the top levels of government. What about the idea that some of these protesters are not even uh, tied into legitimately uh, native claims or anything? They're just anarchists and radicals. Radicals. Oh, I don't doubt that. I don't. Is doubt that, that the experience from BC? Uh, yeah, I think that's the experience. Whenever you see protests, and not just not just First Nations land claim protests and any type of protest. I mean, if it's, it was an environmental, you had an envi- if an environmental protest broke out about this building that's going on out front here, you would see people from everywhere joining the protest, not even knowing what the protest is about. There are professional protesters in the world. Well, I I, I beg to differ with that. I mean, the the folk that you're seeing out there, they're not being paid to be out there. Um, you know, they're they're for for many of them, yes. 
are in support of Indigenous rights, and many others are in support of environmental and climate justice rights, which we have to remember is also part of this discussion. What, a right, what about the right to freedom of access to the railway? And to get to where you need to well, get to. Well, I mean, uh, you know, these clearly are not going to go on forever. I mean, and I don't think they're intended to. Uh, but what it shows is the lack, is the incredible frustration with government, with government's lack of action on both the environmental front and on indigenous, uh, indigenous rights. What about front. anarchy for the sake of its own, uh, for that's, the sake of anarchy? I, I mean, I've that's been a, at those demonstrations. That's not what it's about. Um, what you what you're seeing, and what you see with the Fridays for Futures, with our kids walking out is people are genuinely concerned about the state of the environment, the threats to our environment, and they're genuinely concerned that we put Indigenous as being those people at the front of that struggle, not just their own land claims, but but in, in front of the struggle for the environmental concerns for a whole lot of Canadians. Well, you could pick, cherry pick, I mean, from a, a whole panoply of causes that you want to celebrate and then just shut down the center of the city as people are doing as we speak, Dundas... It's, Right, young, young right. and done. It's a it's a civil right to protest. Uh, well, okay, so civil disobedience. Just pick pick or choose your issue, and uh, away you go. Get a quorum, and you can shut things down. Is that cool with you, Michael? Well, no. I mean, I think in a society like ours, uh, their freedom ends where mine begins, and that's the point. I should be able to get to work and get home from work. And you know, I know that probably most of them aren't paid protesters. Frankly, some of the people who show up to these things aren't paid for doing anything because you know, well, I'll go there. <laughs> but the point being is, uh, you know, they'll show up at the opening of an envelope. So we've got to actually have accountability here and turn around and say, you know, that yeah, there are issues that need to be dealt with, but you don't shut down the real lives. You don't shut down cities. You don't do this kind of stuff to people who, frankly, are just trying to get home from work. And and from a you know from a strictly from a, a political point of view, uh, you're not going to make a lot of friends doing this. You know, and, and I think a lot of people are sympathetic with with the cause, and and there's a lot of things to be sympathetic with. But uh, I'm not sure that doing this is going to, after a, a certain period of time, start to, uh, to to maintain that kind of support. Well, here's another thing. Uh, when Andrew Shear earlier today talked about the privilege of the protesters, give a listen in his own words. I would uh, direct the RCMP to enforce the law. These activists may have the luxury of spending days at a time on a blockade, but they need to check their privilege. They need to check their privilege and let people whose job depends on the railway system and small business, farmers, do their jobs. How about that, Kelly? Check their privilege. In other words, they're in a position where they can take time out and uh, they're actually accorded certain respect or latitude to shut things down, whereas you and I might not be able to do that. Yeah, I've never had the uh, opportunity to take time off of work and you know, not get paid to uh, go and pro- protest these types of things. So uh, I, I was, yeah, but but once again, I'm, I'm sorry, John. Once again, we're dealing with the results. All we're dealing with is, again, the results. The protests are the results. The blockades are the results. All of these things are the results of not doing the job properly and dealing with First Nations issues, and in, in B.C. especially here, and getting the treaties done. All right, unresolved issues that continue to fester into the 21st century. Are we all in agreement that's what really is the root cause of all of this? Absolutely. That's what you say? Yes. All right. Although we, it's uh, Valentine's Day. It's Valentine's Day, that's <laughs> right. Uh, it should be love in the air, as you say. And uh, also, people coming in from Ottawa or Montreal by train. Uh, that ain't going to happen, at least in the foreseeable future. It is Valentine's, isn't it, Sherry? It is indeed. We're oh. all, we're just, it's love is in the air here, John. Love is in the air. <laughs> oh, okay. Love is in the air everywhere. I look around. Anyway, uh, by the way, you know, I was at the Harbor 60 Steakhouse at lunch. We have our Friday lunch in there. And uh, Melissa, the concierge, was telling me it's couples night tonight. Big time. She had, I think, uh, over 370 reservations. 
I said, really? Uh, that's not just not recently. Uh, no, booked well in advance. But that, such is the popularity, and this is why I was, you know, suggesting that people get their dibs in early. Uh, roses for the lady. They're handing out roses for the ladies, although she gave me one. I don't know what that says, but uh, <laughs> so it was just one of those days where uh, we had our not quite the Algonquin roundtable discussion of some of these topics worthy of discussion. I do want to point out, though, uh, at the Harbor 60 Steakhouse, it's always a grandiose occasion. Don't have to wait for Valentine's Day. You can really uh, make it a magical enchanting evening or even luncheon at the Harbor 60 Steakhouse in the iconic, historic Toronto Harbor Commission building just across the street from the Scotiabank Arena, which is where uh, a lot of folks manage to sort of hit the trifecta when they go to a concert or uh, maybe it's a special occasion, Raptors playing, the Leafs playing, and uh, they go for dinner and then afterwards go back, maybe cap off the night with a nightcap, the Harbor 60 Steakhouse. Trifecta, always perfect. That is, again, the historic Toronto Harbor Commission building right at the foot of Bay Street, across from the Scotiabank Arena. Hey, let me ask you about something else that uh, I guess, you know, the rose was given to me and I took it because it's free stuff. I almost felt like one of these Bernie Sanders acolytes. I was thinking, you know, this is where, uh, and Sherry, maybe I'll point this question to you because you come credibly with your NDP background and all. Uh, Bernie Sanders, what's that reflective of? Is socialism gaining acceptance or popularity in a state, or is it all just about uh, mostly millennials and such want free stuff? No, I think it's gaining. Well, in fact, the polls show that socialism is no longer a dirty word in the States and it's gaining credibility. And guess what? People want what we have. They want Medicare um, because they're hurting. A lot of people are hurting in the States. Student loans forgiven. Um, I listen. I'm a Bernie fan. Just Free saying, Just saying, and he's he's rocking it despite his own Democratic Party. Um, so uh, here, well, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Um, there's a lot of forces arrayed against him. Let's just put it that way. So is um, that conspiratorial, yeah. or you think that they're no, it's the establishment? No, it's called if you tax, if you say to wealthy people that you're going to tax them more. Guess what? Wealthy people are not going to support you. Um, I think it's pretty predictable. And so that's but, all mean, the wealthy you know, in the Democrat Party. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's okay. a lot of wealthy Democrats. So I mean, I think you're seeing a, an interesting little uh, you know play playing out there. Yeah. The establishment. Kelly, what do you make of that? Bernie Sanders, is this guy legit? I mean, has a real shot, or do you think they're going to kneecap him? Well, I'm, I'm just really excited because I haven't lifted my finger. I haven't done anything to... I'm not even able to run for the leader of the Democrat Party, but he's just going to give me half his votes because that's how socialism works, right? I didn't earn anything, but I just get half for just being there, right? Showing up. Just showing up. Well, <laughs> what was it Woody Allen said? Uh, 90, 90% of life is just showing up. There you go. <laughs> there <laughs> you go. If he beats Donald Trump, I will eat my hat. Uh-oh. Ooh. There you go. Ooh, <laughs> you never know. It's going to be a red mega hat, by the way. <laughs> red mega hat. So how about it, Michael Giles? What's going on with this phenomenon of Bernie, and do you think that he hasn't got a snowball's chance in hell because the establishment won't allow it? Well, I don't know if it's the establishment won't allow it. I think he, he has a, a chance of winning the Democratic nomination. There's a lot of young people who are being sort of energized by, uh, by the things he's saying, and they connect, and, you know, as they do everywhere, but... At some point, there's going to be a confluence of reality meeting uh, Bernie Sanders and Sanders. And the rea- that reality is that, you know, if he gets nominated, I don't think, frankly, he can be- beat Donald Trump. I mean, we have to remember the United States, it comes down to about five states, you know, Indiana, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Illinois, um, uh, Ohio. If, if you can't win those states, you can't win because, you know, you, you can win California with 30 million votes or 50 million votes. It doesn't matter. Um, you know, and so in that sense, 
you know, does he win those sort of rust belt states? I don't know. Maybe he has a chance of turning some of them. But you know what? Right now, I think the if you have the, the reality of the economy doing well, uh, Trump is obviously appealing to that base. You know, he's, he's got almost a 50% approval rating, uh, which is a few polls have confirmed. Uh, so, you know, what's going to be the narrative that gets people in the United States? And uh, frankly, it's a bit of an echo chamber now where people seem to be entrenched. Nobody's paying any attention to all this kind of stuff. You know, even what went on in Florida the other day with the prosecutors. I mean, it's just all seems to have become noise to people. And so really what it gets down to, the very base question people are going to ask themselves are, am I doing okay economically? Is the country doing okay economically? The rest of it's just politics and noise. And frankly, I, I, I think it'll be very difficult. It'll be a difficult narrative for Bernie to say, you know, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, and, uh, uh, you know, and beat Donald Trump. A friend of mine at lunch uh, at the Harbor 60 Steakhouse was telling me <laughs> that he just came back from Florida. He was down in Naples. He said the economy down there is roaring. It's on fire. You've got people who can't even uh, fulfill some of their uh, manpower requirements, you know, in restaurants and things like that. Uh, because, you know, there's just so much demand for labor. And so I don't know. I mean, maybe they'll bring in, uh, you know, some of these uh, irregular migrants uh, to fill those roles. That may be one of the things that are driving, by the way, that whole uh, stream of migration. Yeah, and the reality is unless the economy turns, I don't see how you beat Donald Trump. Well, and then you've got the other multi-zillionaire uh, running on the Democrat ticket. Uh, <laughs> When Michael Bloomberg, and by the way, uh, you know, what they say is never get into an argument against somebody who buys ink by the barrel. The guy's got a media outlet. Uh, <laughs> he can actually, you know, and he has. He's actually manipulated the messaging from that. Sherry DeNovo, though, but I mean, for somebody who wants to be seen credibly as, you know, uh, a Democrat on the left of center, I mean, the guy's got $70 billion in the bank. Oh, well, I don't think he's a, cre- a credible uh candidate at all. And I think you have to remember, too, the way the American system is set up. I mean, this is barely, I mean, I, they love to pride themselves on what a democracy they have. But really, the Electoral College, really, uh, a, a total lack of financing uh, laws just about, I mean, the richest person has a huge edge in the United States. Well, that's Bloomberg. And, and, well, it's actually Donald Trump right now. He's raising money to beat the band. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, you're dealing with a system that's automatically skewed against uh, sort of an upstart like a Bernie. But having said that, I think it's phenomenal what he's done. And I think uh, it's, you know, done the way these things should be done. Um, Mass movements, you know, a lot of people contributing a little bit to Uh, making, uh, to having their voice heard. That's Trump. That's Bernie. Oh, well, to oh. remember the United both, States. Is, think, yeah, the United States is actually not a democracy. The United States is a republic. And, you know, I'm going back to my th- political theory. So, you know, it's, it's not a democracy in the sense that everybody gets to say all the time. You choose people and they govern you for four years. And so in that sense, there's a system in place. And the whole electoral college was designed to prevent, you know, the, the founding fathers in the United States to prevent the chance that some, you know, crazy person would become president. And I guess it didn't work. But anyway, the, the point being, hey, no, by the way, were you at the opening night of Hamilton as well? That was, <laughs> no, no. Kind it was like of the, a sop to the South, yeah. too. Yeah, that was a sub-theme in all of that, actually. I, yeah. was, what, I, I wasn't sure. Have they actually finished counting Iowa yet? Yeah, no, I think they'll have it done by November. <laughs> yeah. Iowa's not a settled thing. No, uh, but, you well, know, I mean, basically the delegates are uh, pretty much even. Yeah. even all two of them. But Yeah, okay. And so uh, when it comes to leadership contests, got to ask you about this one. Uh, here in this country, as you know, for the Conservative Party of Canada, John Baird yesterday said uh, he's not interested. And so right now it looks like it's uh, effectively a two-horse race. you got Peter McKay 
and Aaron O'Toole. Now, Aaron O'Toole uh, produced a video. I was watching it earlier today. He says this conservative government under him would defund CBC Digital and cut the CBC English TV budget by half. Our plan will phase out TV advertising with a goal to fully privatize CBC English TV by the end of our first mandate. Kelly, is this a winning gambit? Well, I, I, I have to say first off that I am helping Aaron out a little bit. So oh, I would say it's a winning gambit. But uh, honestly, I will, because I, I, I try to be uh, as honest as I can when I'm on, on here. Um, conservative leaderships, this is, this is a winning gambit for conservative leadership. Is it a winning gambit for the federal election? I don't know. Oh, well, how do you back down from that after you win the leadership and it becomes... Uh, how a, does a politician back down from saying something and then doing something oh, else? Yeah, you're right. <laughs> Naive of me to ask. Uh, but the idea, you know, it is resonating with... Uh, and his positioning statement is true blue conservative. Yes. Right. Okay. Uh, just wanted to check your cred. And and so uh, does this make sense to you? I mean, maybe the, land sh- the, the landscape has shifted. He says, you know... Time was, this was a necessity. He'd still maintain the radio arm of things, but uh, right now he says, like, for example, Canadian Family Feud. How does that enhance culture and democracy in this country? Well, I I think this is one of those issues. It's kind of like Canadians feel about their medical system. I mean, you you can, you know, make changes around the edges, but, you know... Most Canadians, I mean, there's kind of a love for the CBC, and and, is there? and I think there is. Uh, as, <laughs> not on and, Valentine's not Day, not necessarily <laughs> in downtown Toronto either, but what? in some places where that's the only station you, you get. Still, like, I, there's a kind. I I, I think I this is a very it, I bizarre. <laughs> I think this is a very bizarre thing to ha- hang your hat on, even for the Conservative leadership, because you're right, John. He can't really back down from this. If he wins. So why would you go there? Like, why would you? This is kind of one of those Canadian things. Ask him. He's helping him. You know, I why not pick another topic? Anyway, I think it was a miscue. I don't think it's going to help him. Um, And uh, I I don't know that it's going to help him even with rank and file conservatives. Quite All right. Well, how do you feel, Michael? I mean, what what does this say as a positioning statement? I I mean, I don't think it's going to hurt him within the conservative party and certainly not within the the voters within or the delegates within the conservative party that he's trying to attract. Tract. And, uh, you know, of course he doesn't, you know, necessarily have to follow through on it. I think there's a larger discussion to have about the CBC. I mean, I think it's, what, over a billion and something that the, the federal government gives to the CBC. 1.2. 1.2 billion. And I, I wonder if, you know, this was fun. when it was formed in 1936, as I understand it, it made a lot of sense, you know, it connected the country in a way. But we live in a digital age and, and you know, a family feud, Canadian family feud is what they can come up with. I mean, it's excruciating. The um, I shouldn't say that, but it's it's not a great show. <laughs> but uh, the point is that you know you wonder about say even half of that money, five hundred million dollars, just over five hundred million dollars, going directly to Canadian uh, you know young people, Canadian producers in different forms of media, that kind of thing. What kind of content they can produce in a world that is rapidly, rapidly changing? I mean, the the, the two one of the two main pillars of the CBC was you know Hockey Night in Canada, which they no longer have. Uh, I think they they well, show they lost. It. And there was a story that came out. Pardon me for interrupting, but uh, pardon the interruption. It, it uh, <laughs> they've lost about two billion dollars yeah, in revenue uh, since losing the rights to Rogers, and uh, this is what they're claiming though that somehow they need help because they are the pillar of uh, their quote culture and democracy in Canada. 
which is crazy. I mean, and you look at the news. Home Alone cast. too, you know. That's yeah. that's that's culture <laughs> and democracy in Canada, right there. And the the new uh, the new uh, newscast format came out over years so is actually failing, you know, fairly dramatically. People are, you know, the ratings are dropping very substantially for it. So, I mean, at, at the very least, I think it needs to yeah, rethink. But I'm not saying we didn't spend that money in terms of uh, in the culture and, and and helping. You know, as I say, my preference would be to young Canadian artists, producers, and filmmakers, and that kind of thing. What they would do with that kind of money, and and we have some of the most innovative people in the world, young people. So that's where I think perhaps we should be looking at where that should go. But some of, uh, on, to be fair, some of, you know, CBC's money does go to, to that yeah. quarter. Um, they do, you know, foster that. They do start shows that are Canadian, whether we like them or not. Um, and, you know, they're the respected news source. So, I mean, I, I again, I think you're dealing with something that is so quintessentially Canadian um, that it may, even if it appeals to the rank and file in the Conservative Party, it, it's not it's not an election grabber for the rest of Canada, especially if the party's trying to become more centrist, which I think um, is, you know, part well, of I'm the I'm not move. sure he is. I think he's actually trying to tack to the right. Uh, and this is the marker that he's putting down because Didn't this Didn't work resident. for Scheer. Didn't work for Scheer. He won the leadership. Uh, he did, and then... I think there was a lot yeah. of other things that didn't work for, for Mr. Scheer. Um I I don't I don't disagree with defunding the CBC. Uh, the CBC. Look, when I went to journalism school, we all wanted to work for the CBC because you you had a job for life, you had a wicked pension plan, and you made more money than anybody else in journalism. Well, that eventually that's going to end when people less and less people where there's more and more avenues to get the news from. You're not and, and get your get your information from. You're going to go elsewhere. And do we need to keep propping it up so that we can get yet another take on Anna Green Gables? Yeah, well, and that's the thing. I like the CBC. I like watching the news. I really do. I like some of the documentaries they produce are amazing. But, you know, go out onto the street and ask people to name 10 CBC shows. That's true. And uh, so you ought to tell the people that are streaming into the building there on uh, Wellington or Front Street, they ought to check their privilege. Uh, (laughs) Hey, you know, speaking of consultation with Native groups, this is an interesting sidebar. I'll ask you very quickly. We'll shoehorn this one in. Uh, The Edmonton Eskimos, the team in the Canadian Football League, uh, there's a naming controversy. Do you support that name, the Edmonton Eskimo, Sherry? Well, it's not up to me. It's up to, you know, the Inuit. And, and I think what they did there, which is kind of interesting and, and maybe a way forward for some sports teams, is they actually consulted with them. They actually sat down with them and talked to them. Um, and, you know, and, and I think that's what you do when you're confronted with some problems because it, it has been um, a racist term. It's been used in a racist way. Um, and, uh, and and Indigenous right in groups with, you know, everything on their side have objected to it. But, I mean, I think really what they want to do is just sit down and talk with, with somebody, and they're doing that. Good well, they did. Them. They're going to keep the name. They Good actually consulted with the Inuit up in Inuvik, uh, Yellowknife, uh, even in Ottawa, uh, in Inuvik. And these groups all said, all, all we want is, again, a little bit of outreach, recognize, you know, that we're here, and uh, you include us in your consultation. Go ahead. Keep the name. How cool is that? That's a good thing, isn't it, Mike? No, I think it's a good thing. I mean, okay. I, with the I, you know the whole notion of Eskimos, I, you know that whole name. I, I, as long as the the Inuit, you know, are fine with it. But I think there's there's bigger issues with uh, some of these names, like the Atlanta Braves and the Washington Redskins and and the Cleveland. And, like those are those are names that should have been changed a long time ago. Well, it's, what's a more egregious thing that these teams still carry that moniker, or the Houston Astros uh, cheating on signals and stealing <laughs> signs and things like that, Kelly? Is cheating in sports? Wow. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't think that a single Boston team would ever win anything if there wasn't cheating in sports. So oh. I, that's, that's besides Ooh. the point. Um, look, Ooh, I like, an 
Irish person sitting next to you. I'm I'm from Calgary. I grew up in Calgary, so quite honestly, I don't. If the Edmonton Eskimos didn't exist, it wouldn't bother me once one bit. But I will say, I like what they've done. It's a little different than Washington Redskins, for example. Dan Snyder, the owner down there. He would go and uh, you know talk about name change, and he would say, "Yeah, we're going to change it. We're going to change it to the DC Redskins." Like that's how out of touch they are with their naming. And Cleveland, the Chief Wahoo uh, mascot. That you want to talk about offensive things? That's offensive. Well, the but, tomahawk chop. You know, I was hate to say it at the Super Bowl, and uh, all these fans from Kansas City were doing the tomahawk chop. I mean, is that cool? I mean, is that sanctioned? It it <clears throat> seemed like maybe they got licensed somehow, social permission to do that. Well, the the name Chiefs and um, the like the Blackhawks logo, those are a lot more acceptable than some of the other things. But Tomahawk Chop and the old touchdown or uh, song that the Redskins used to have, it's the most offensive thing you'll ever hear. I, I'm obviously not going to say any of the lyrics to it here, but... Uh, oh, most offensive. So you obviously haven't heard Lil Wayne's new album. Uh <laughs> Let me ask you this finally. Did you ever see did you ever see uh, this video that's gone viral about the the woman reclining in her airline seat and the guy behind? You have? Everybody has? Michael Giles, uh who's in the right on this one or who's in the wrong because uh she was reclining in her seat. He was in a constricted space. The bulwark was behind him so he couldn't really recline himself. He's reading his tablet there on his tray table pulled open. So when she reclines he's punching the back of her seat. Uh, well. <laughs> I would probably be him. I mean, it's just selfish. You, you know, you, you know that he's up against the bulkhead, the, the wall behind him, so he can't recline. And you're going to recline your seat into like you know into his knees. Like it's just, and it just happens all the time on airplanes. You know, people are just selfish. Is that what it is, Kelly? I think they're. I hate to say this. This is uh, really terrible. But I'm. I'm actually think that they're both idiots. <laughs> I think. I think he could have simply asked the woman, say, tell her like I've got little space here. Could you mind not reclining? And perhaps she could have been a you know a little more human and saying, sorry, I didn't realize how tight it is. But um, whose side am I on in this? Last in June, I was flying to uh, Amsterdam on like uh, a, a premium economy. And I, I slightly reclined my seat, and the woman behind me went absolutely berserk on me. Uh, so uh, I'm going to be on the recliner side. I, I just, will they build airplanes so you can sit them? <laughs> I'm little, and I sit with my knees up around my ears. I mean, I can't imagine somebody six foot two flying an economy in some of those seats. Like, this is impossible. So design better. That's what I'll say. Design oh, okay. the seats better. Well, you won't you have go. the fights then. <laughs> Doesn't answer my question, or but there the you train. go. Uh, we're done for the day and the week. A great one for Talk Radio. Thank you, Sherry, Michael, Kelly. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.